and this morning we will be looking at uh, John chapter 8. Uh, before we do, let's pray briefly. Father God, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would uh, open it to us, open up our hearts, help us to understand uh, everything that you would uh, be saying to us this morning. Be with us now. So, if you go only by statistics, only by census data, 2.2 million people in the world today identify as Christian. In other words, they have checked the box on a form, or somebody has checked it for them, saying that they identify as a Christian. And that's, that's great, that's, that's, that's a big number, that's, that's many ways encouraging, but in many ways that can be unhelpful because we know that many who check the box may not genuinely have a faith of their own, may not actually live that out. And that can be challenging. Let's imagine for a second, instead, 2.2 billion people in the world today identify as a plumber. One in four people was identified as a plumber. Imagine that, it's so easy. You know, you find a plumber, one in four people is a plumber. You can call them up, no problem. However, you can imagine the reputation of plumbing would probably go like this. Because the majority of people, even if they check the box in the form that says plumber, they may not really be a very good plumber. They may not actually um, really work at being a plumber. Whereas, what it wouldn't do is it would not undermine the authenticity of plumbing. There would be, be people out there who genuinely are good plumbers, who actually are uh, invested in that trade. And it is much the same way for us. It would be great, you know, uh, when a great number of people are Christians, I mean, that used to be the way in the UK, and that can be encouraging, but it can be unhelpful. If you flip the coin and actually come to the UK now, a very small proportion of the population would consider themselves a Christian. And that may be the lowest number we've seen in like the last 100, 150 years. And the interesting thing is that if you go back further, the number goes a bit like this. You find at some points in history, almost nobody ever went to church. Think of you know, Charles Dickens and that sort of era. There are really kind of black periods in British history, and then other periods where people came back and found faith in God. And the thing is that whether a great number of people or very few people believe in Jesus, that says pretty much nothing about the authenticity of the claim. Whether many people or a few people believe in Jesus, that doesn't tell you whether or not it is true. And so we really must begin with the evidence. Um, I spoke a few months ago, we looked at a lot of the textual uh, evidence behind John. As a, as, a, as a letter, um, as a book in the Bible, and then a couple of weeks ago, Martin uh, did a fantastic message and it covered a lot of the, um, the textual manuscript evidence behind the New Testament as a whole, which is fantastic. And please do, you know, if, if you're not familiar with any of that stuff, feel free to revisit it or ask any questions. But again, what that tells us is that this book, the New Testament, is authentic. These are the authentic words that were written in the first century. They have not been changed, they have not been altered, we can have full confidence and trust that these are the accurate words that were written. And again, that doesn't necessarily give us a conclusion on whether it's true. The Gospels are a bit like a reverse 
murder mystery. We know, we know who did it, we know who killed Jesus, but as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four uh, Gospels, the, the, the accounts of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, the question is, who is Jesus? Who is the, the man at the, at the centre of all this? What are the implications of his death? Did he really rise from the grave? What are the implications of that for us? And so today's passage in John chapter 8, we're going to start from verse 31 in just a second. It's worth pausing and reflecting on who is this man to us. He says a great many things, and, and there's a lot of confusion, a lot of argumentation in the passage here. And, and his audience, the Jewish audience, uh, they're, they're really confused about many things. One thing they are not confused about is the gravity of Jesus' claims. He claims to be the light of the world, a source of truth, a source of freedom. He existed long before Abraham. He will be glorified by the Father in heaven. These are grand claims. And people forget this. In, in, our, in our culture today, where we don't really have much engagement with the Bible, people sometimes call Jesus a good teacher. And in the light of the words here and throughout the Gospels, he cannot, cannot be just a good teacher. Either these things are false, and he knows it, in which case he would be a charlatan and a liar, or they are false and he does not know it, and he would be a lunatic, a madman, on the part of somebody who claims to be a bookshag, or they are true. And he knows they are true. These are the only choices open to us. As we read these words, let us not get kind of led down that line of thinking perhaps he's just a good teacher. That's not an option that Jesus ever intended to leave open to us. Either these words are worth very little or they are worthy of our greatest attention and interest and study. With that said, let's turn to John chapter 8 and read from verse 31. He's still talking with the, the Jewish people there in the temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. Jesus says that in order to have life, in order to have freedom, we are to abide in his words. And this surprises the, the Jewish people he's talking to because they are children, they are descendants of Abraham. They are recipients of the covenants, the promises that came to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. There's so many things that God did to the Old Testament. They are the ones who inherit all these things. However, 
The problem is that just because you are born in a Christian or a Jewish family, just because you come from a Christian country, these things do not happen to make you a child of God any more than being born in a shepherd island makes you a pony. We have to come back to the words of Jesus. Before I became a Christian, my mum came to faith. She kind of came back to faith a bit later on in life. I think it would have been her, her mid or late 30s or something like that. And although it deeply frustrated me that my mum suddenly changed and changed her mind on a bunch of stuff, but I saw a change in her attitude. She was different in the way that she behaved, the way that she argued, the way that she got frustrated and challenged in life. And although I was very skeptical, and I didn't want to believe that any of it was true, one thing that stuck with me was that it was a significant change for my mum. And so the thought deep in my heart, I would never have said it, was that if I did become a Christian, and it was all true, I was a little bit terrified that meant that I would change. I didn't want to change, I didn't want to not be me anymore. I thought that if, if, I, if I changed the way that my mum did, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be myself, and that was a, a scary thing. But Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But freedom. After Jesus brought me to himself, that's a different story entirely. After I came to trust in him, I began to get it, that around my heart there was this big crust of rubbish and crap and stuff that had accumulated like rust on my heart and it just changed who I was and I honestly didn't like who I was anymore. But because of what Jesus did, this accumulation of, of rust and rubbish with being peeled away until at last I felt free. And then my, my reflection on it at the, at the time was that I felt more like who I had been as a child, more full of lightness and joy before I'd been kind of weighed down by all the stuff that had happened to me and the stuff that I'd chosen to do. I felt free. If the sun sets you free, will be free indeed. Verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. He answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He 
He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The people have been listening to Jesus and they, they've drawn this box around who Jesus is. They, they, have, a, they have a box for Jesus. It's, it's, it's a box that has all the labels of who they think Jesus is and the things that he has taught and what they think about those things. And everything that he says gets put in this box and they refuse to look outside of it. Refuse to see him as he is. We're, we're good at this. We, we love to make little boxes for ideas and boxes for people and you put the person or the idea in that box and you stick your labels on it and that's what you think about it and you're not prepared to look inside of what's really going on. And so on one hand we will make judgments over very small things and then on the other we will excuse ourselves of the greatest mistakes. The worst things that we do, we will excuse away quite happily while holding others against far lesser things that we've done. We are very comfortable in our sin. This is taught to us from our culture. We, we learn this growing up. We keep uh, a corner of our heart where our lust lives. The, the passion for people we are not married to. We protect it and shelter it and pretend it isn't there. We have another corner where our anger lives, where we sharpen our axe or our tongue and wait for, for that moment to, to use it and we strike and relish the moment. In another corner, we keep our pride, perhaps our vanity, where we love to, to think of ourselves better than others. We wouldn't say it, we wouldn't say it out loud. But we protect that little corner. And then we've got another one where we keep our selfishness, our deception, where we put ourselves first and others last. And there are many other corners in our hearts. But the thing is, we are so comfortable with them, we forget that they're even there. We shelter them and protect them and hide them away. And we believe that we are the ones in control. I'm the one that chooses when to visit that corner. I'm the one that chooses what goes on over there. We feel in control of it all until you try to stop. Until you try to stop entirely your, your, your pride or your anger or your lust. And then you realize actually, I don't have much control over this as I thought I did. I, I love psychology, I love sociology, I say this quite often. Um, one of the things that I find strangely encouraging is that no matter how hard you try, no matter what you learn, no matter how much positive thinking that you apply, no matter what kind of therapy, these things don't go away. If the whole world is just a matter of subjective truths, and some things could be right to some people, some things could be wrong for others, then that would be wonderful. I mean, I mean all these things are just relative. Surely you can train yourself out of these things. There's no inherent sin keeping a hold on you. You are not enslaved to any of these things. It's like whack-a-mole. 
You know, there's a game in the arcade on the beach, and you get the hammer and the balls all pop up. It's like, like a bang. There's, you know, pride and lust and anger. And every time you hit one, like two more pop up. And they, you know, you try and just, you know, cramp down, cut down on these difficult things within your heart. And like, oh, surely I'll be better when I just hit all these moles on the head. But actually, no matter what you do, the game just keeps going. They keep popping back up. And so instead, you take a different approach, and the world has taken a different approach. The world has realized you can't get rid of these things, and so the world has come to accept them. Uh, traditionally, and I'm not going to go all the way down this detour, but traditionally, Christians believe there are three enemies of our souls. The world, our sinful desires, and the devil. Each of these things, from outside and within, they are enemies of our souls and war against the things of God in us. And these things tell us that it's fine. Don't worry about it. Everything is going to be fine. There's a great verse in Proverbs. Proverbs uh, chapter 27, verse 6. It says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The wound of a friend can be trusted, but the enemy multiplies kisses. The enemies of our souls tell us that these things that are destructive to us are fine. Don't worry about them, they'll be fine. Even as we feel ourselves circling the dream on the way down, unable to escape. And Jesus takes a different approach. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Jesus challenges the hidden sin in the people's hearts. You think that you're fine, you think you're a child of Abraham, but you don't act like Abraham. You think you're a child of God, but you don't love what God loves. You claim to represent God, but you don't even hear his words. Jesus is not fooled by the expressions on their faces or by the empty excuses. And this is the same with us. I wonder, does this feel familiar? Does this moment feel familiar to you at all? This is one of the gates that we pass through on the way to repentance. Once or many times in our lives, we come almost face to face with God, our Creator, the one who knows us like nobody else ever can, who sees in every hidden corner of our hearts. And in that moment, we're aware of that. We are aware of his presence, his love for us that goes above and beyond all these things that we've done. And in that moment we realise that on just about every possible level, we are broken. We're not right, we're damaged, we're corrupted. There are these things within us that we are powerless to change. We need his Verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This is the, the moment in the, in the argument where, um, you know, the argument can get bigger and bigger. Jesus has said, You know, you are children of the devil. And they go, Oh, yeah, well, you're, you're a foreigner and you're, you have a demon. But Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And this has carried us all the way back to verse 31. He said something quite similar. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In other words, if we want that freedom, if we want the, the, that you know, being free indeed in our heart of hearts, if we want to hear and love and do the things of God from the depths of our hearts up, then we must abide in his words. And then we will truly be his disciples. We must keep his word. And then we will never see death. What, what, what did Jesus mean here? What does he mean by abiding in his words? I'll tell you what he doesn't mean. Two things that he doesn't mean. First, he is not saying that being a disciple is all about being intellectual. Now, reading is good, learning is good, but life comes through Jesus and through his works. Later on, when we get to John 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is the life. He is the way. He is the truth. I'll give you a fun fact. If you go back to the, the early church, first century, second century, third century, as far as we understand it, the majority of Christians were illiterate. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. Because that's the world. Most people in the world couldn't read, they couldn't write, unless they'd been taught. However, that means they were illiterate. That does not mean that they were stupid. In the early church, Christians invested a great deal of energy into memorizing the words of Jesus. As far as we understand it, pretty much every Christian memorized, as a part of their coming to faith, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. They memorized the Lord's Prayer. They memorized so many of Jesus' words in order that they could abide in them and learn and do them. So it's not about being intellectual. Learning is good. Reading is good. But it is through Jesus' words that we have life and peace and freedom. He also isn't saying that we receive life and freedom by doing good things. Again, Good things are important. The, the, the Jewish audience here, they are kings of doing good things. They do good things 24 hours a day, six days a week. They do lots of good things. But good things are not enough. If you take for a second, have a glass of bleach. And this represents all the, the, the darkness in our hearts. The things that at surface value, they look fine. But we know they are corrosive and difficult and painful. And so what we do is we try and hide them. We find good things, things that other people would think are excellent and praiseworthy. And we'll pour in as much good works as we can until it looks great. It looks like I've got a glass of orange juice here, but at the end of the day, it doesn't change it. It is still a glass of bleach. No matter how many good works, no matter how many good things I try to pour in, it is not enough. And we realize that we've got a problem that we can't deal with by ourselves. We need I can't, I can't just keep filling this up. I need a change of heart. I need a change of glance. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. When we enter through Jesus' death, through his resurrection, and have new life, we have a new glass. The old is gone, there is no more bleach, that, that, that corruption in the depths of our hearts is washed away. And instead, we start off with the orange flexes, with the goodness of Jesus. And so, this time, when we do give thanks, it's filled up with the works of Jesus. And actually, when you pour water in there, It'll begin to taste like oranges. It'll begin to taste like the goodness of Jesus. This is what it is to, to have new life in Jesus. And it tastes good. <laughs> there are many in the crowd here with Jesus who have begun to believe in him. And the first thing that Jesus does, it is really striking. You know, many in the crowd begin to believe in him. And so what does Jesus do? He makes it harder. He begins to teach and challenge them. Challenge them. Don't, don't just hold on to the few words that you've heard so far. Take all of my word or none of it. Jesus, in the passage here, he just continues to press and press and press. Do you believe me? Do you accept me for who I am? Do you accept the things that God is doing? There's no such thing in life as a little bit of freedom. You're either enslaved or you are free. There's no such thing as a little bit of life. You're either alive or you are dead. The wounds of a friend can be trusted. Jesus challenges us. This is one of the little things that I love about being a Christian. That when there is a wrongness in my heart, when there is sin there, that Jesus challenges that. Enables me to liberate that and free that, uh, free, free myself from that by his work. He pushes us to make a choice. Verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died after the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his words. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They were about to stone him for claiming to be God, for claiming to be the great I am that was from before Abraham. We will continue through John over the months ahead, and as we get towards the end, we will find that Jesus dies 
to heal and forgive the same people who condemned him, the same people who slandered him. The cross is a great equaliser, it's that offer of peace from God. God himself reaching down to meet us where we are, to free us from this cross around our hearts. Dying, rising again, so that we can be free and have life that does not run out. We're just about done for this morning. I've got two applications here. First of all, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, do you hear his words? Do you love what God loves? Do you do what he does? Jesus said in the passage here, to those who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Hear his words, do what they say, love what God loves, and you will never see death. The Sermon on the Mount says many similar things. In Matthew 7, verse 24, Jesus teaches everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. Everyone who hears these words and does them. In Matthew 7, verse 17, he also says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Second, if you are not a Christian today, I'd ask you, how do you respond to the words of Jesus? Who is he in your sight? Are these words true? Will you be his disciple? If you don't know enough, if you don't know enough to make an informed choice on this, what's the plan? What's the plan on reading and understanding more about this until you're at the point to make that choice? The important thing is these are huge claims this morning, these are life-changing claims, and how we respond will determine the rest of our lives, if not our eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you don't just lead us in our sin, in our shame, circling the dream. We know what it is to feel shame. We know what it is to feel the helpless and hurt that we cannot escape. We thank you that you are the shepherd of our souls. You are the light of the world. It is by your word that we can have peace, that we can have freedom, that we can have life. We pray that you would send your word deep into our hearts. Help us to love you and to love your word. Help us to commit it to our hearts, commit it to our memories, and to follow you in everything that we do. Bless us and be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.